as you can tell, you didn't know at the very end. That's based on Jesus' very short one-verse parable in Matthew 13. Um, we have sound? No? Forget it. Uh, no! Okay. Um, so, parables. We're going to get back to the parable of the hidden treasure, but I just want to talk briefly about what a parable is. So what is it? What do you guys think? Let's try to define this. What is a parable? Yeah. Some, a, a story that can help you find what? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A story of the biblical meaning. What else? biblical teachings into a story to make it easier to understand. Anybody else want anything? Okay. Um, before I give you my definition, I just want to talk about the word parable. It comes from the Greek word parabolo. Do you guys know of a word that this sounds like? Maybe from like an Algebra 2 class? Parabola? What is a parabola? Huh? A loopy, yeah. So it's like when things are like curves are like this, right? They they come real close to each other. They come alongside each other. And the Greek word we we take it apart. Para means alongside, and balo. Here I'm going to teach you some Greek here. This is the easiest Greek word you'll ever you'll ever learn. Balo means to throw, like you throw a ball. Okay, so it means to throw alongside. So why do we call it that? Why do we call it a a story that is thrown alongside. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah, if you guys didn't hear what he said, it's kind of like a parallel universe, right? So it's a, a, a a fictional story that comes right alongside our real world, and that we can take truths from that story and apply to the real world. Uh, so if that's the case, then are these just kind of nice little stories? No. I mean, actually, they're not. many of them aren't even nice at all. Jesus tells a story about a king who destroys an entire city who speaks against the king, a manager who cheats his master out of money, and then the master praises the manager for this? What is that about? We'll get to that one in a couple weeks. A guy who is burning in hell and begs for relief? These aren't nice little fun bedtime stories, right? These are pretty scary stuff sometimes. Well, before I help us define what a parable is, why do you think Jesus teaches in, in parable form, in story form? I think, first of all, if you, if you guys were with us last month for, or this month, for our first film in theology, I talked a little bit about story, and we'll continue to talk about that as we watch movies together. But first, God is a storyteller for us. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning phrase kind of acts like a once upon a time. 
I'm introing the story, God says. Let's go back to the very beginning, kind of like once upon a time. And you, have you guys ever thought of that we tend to think of the Bible as just like a list of truths about God? But have you ever thought about that 70% of the Bible comes to us in story form? It's not just a list of things about us and about God, but God reveals himself and ourselves to us through story. 70% of the Bible is through story. And if we are created in God's image, then one of those characteristics that we reflect in God is the longing to tell and to hear stories. So we read books, we watch movies, we, listen, we love songs that tell a story. And when, you're, when you get home from school, when your parents at the dinner table ask you, how's your day today? They don't want you to list some facts about what happened. What do they want you to do? Tell, you, tell them stories. What happened? What happened when you were, I don't know, the, when you were hanging out near your locker and talking with friends? What happened there? What happened in the cafeteria? Tell, tell me stories. I don't want to just get a list of the emotions that you felt today. I want to hear stories that accompanied those emotions. So we love stories. We, we want to tell them and we want to hear them. And Jesus is also a storyteller. And not only does he tell stories to us, but he is the story. That's kind of crazy. In John 1, John says that the word, Jesus, the story, became flesh. The story became a man. So it's like, as I told some of you guys at Film and Theology, it's like as if C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, when Tolkien's writing The Lord of the Rings, it's as if he wrote a character named J.R.L. Tolkien to accompany the nine or something, right? Like he wrote himself into the story to not only, and then not only to be a character, but Jesus wrote himself into the story to be the character. So he's a storyteller within the story, but he's also the hero, the protagonist of the story. So we love stories because we reflect this God-given, God, this godly characteristic of telling and hearing stories. So Jesus comes to us in stories. He tells us stories. But again, they're not just nice little bedtime stories. And I don't think they're just like analogies or similes or metaphors. You guys know these words from your English classes, right? One common definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So why would, why would people define it like this? What are they trying to say when they say, they say a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reflects something godly or something like that. I think this is a helpful definition, but I don't think it's quite right. Because I don't think these are just moral stories that are supposed to stand on their own that teach us something about the way God is. I think that's more than that. There's a, I have this giant book called Stories with Intent about the parables, and the author's, has, the author's name is kind of ridiculous. His name is Klein Snodgrass. Be, be, be thankful your last name isn't Snodgrass. Uh, but he writes that, Parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. So I've, I've used my vision and my glasses as an analogy for you guys before, right? But I can see you right now pretty well. I can see that that's Kelly right there, mainly because I see the mustache. Uh, I don't think there's another mustache in the room, right? So I know it's him. Uh, oh, yeah, well, you got a 
keep a, a little bit more going on here, but. Uh, I can make you out. I, I know who you are, but I can't really see you that well. You're pretty blurry. But what happens now? Oh, hello, there you are. Now I see you very crisply. It's like you're in HD. I can see Matt in the back now, right? And so if, if Snodgrass, it's a silly name, if Snodgrass is right that our vision is distorted, the way that we see ourselves, God, the earth around us, then parables help us to see crisply, to help us fix our distorted vision. So these, Jesus tells us immediately some really interesting stories. It catches our attention immediately, right? So pretty quickly, the guy finds oil in the ground, right? We're like, this is, I'm kind of intrigued. What's going to happen? And he tells us these interesting stories to kind of sneak by. He's, Jesus is being really sneaky when he tells parables. He's trying to sneak by our preconceived notions about the way life really is, about who God is, about who we are. And he's trying to, he's, he's sneaking by us by kind of like diverting our attention by saying, he's kind of like saying, hey, look up here, look up here, look up here, look up here, right? So we're not just thinking about the things that we think are true. And then when we're distracted and enter ourselves into the story, then that begins to act like putting on glasses. Can anybody think of a, a parable that we find in the Old Testament? It, there's, a, there's a pretty famous one about a guy coming to another guy and telling him a story to sneak by. Yeah. Bam. Yeah, so... Okay, so... You guys didn't hear Nathan and David. If you don't know the story, David is the king. He, uh, he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. He likes her. He brings her to the palace. He sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. Problem is, not only has he committed adultery, but Bathsheba is married to this guy named Uriah, and Uriah is out fighting David's wars. So what does he do? He calls Uriah back. He's going to think, I'm going to get Uriah to come back. Um, sleep with his wife so she gets pregnant immediately and no one will be any the wiser that I did it, right? But Uriah, uh, he won't be with his wife while his comrades at arms are out fighting, so he sleeps outside and David tries to get him drunk to get him to go in and he still won't do it. So then what does David do? He sends Uriah back out to war, but not only to war, but to the very front lines to make sure that Uriah will get killed. Okay, we've got a web of sin going on right here. And so what does Nathan the prophet do? What do you think would happen if Nathan the prophet came into, Jesus, or came into David's courts and said, Hey, king, you are not only abusing your kingly power, but you are an adulterer, a coveter, and a murderer. How do you think David might have responded to this? Off with his head. Yeah, get out of here, right? Like, we've, we have seen how David will respond to, to, to protect himself, to protect his reputation and his kingship. He'll have people killed. And it's very likely that's the reaction that would have happened with Nathan. So what does Nathan do instead? You guys know the parable that Nathan tells. He tells the story about this kind of poor man who really only, the only thing he has is this little ewe lamb, this little sheep, and he loves and cares for the ewe. He even treats her like a daughter. He loves her so much. But then there's this really wealthy guy who has everything he could, 
anything he can need. He has flocks and herds and palaces and everything else. And the, a guest comes into the king's court or the rich man's court, and instead of taking one of his own sheep, he takes the poor man's sheep and he slaughters that poor sheep for dinner. And David, hearing this story, thinking it's real, says, how could this be? This man is terrible. He's selfish. He's, he's just completely not caring about other people. This man who cared so much for the sheep, this man should be executed. And what does Nathan then say? You're the man. And how does David respond? Do you, do you remember what David says? He says, immediately, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't respond in pride and protection and self-defense and anger. He responds in repentance. So David entered himself into the story, uh, relates to the character that was in the story, and then is immediately moved to respond to it. So parables are comparisons with two worlds, like Andrew said, but I don't think it's just not necessarily an earthly and a heavenly realm, right? It's just comparisons where Jesus is saying, enter into the story and then respond to it. So the parables awaken our understanding about what Jesus is teaching. So we understand more greatly about the kingdom of God, for instance, why what he's teaching. Then he provokes our consciences. So we, we understand, we not only understand what is right and wrong, but we feel it. And then he moves us to action by telling us these stories. So, just like Nathan, Jesus understands that we are people who enter ourselves into the story and then he can sneak past our tendency to just live in impractical doctrine. Isn't this what we do? We just read like some systematic theology book. We can do this. I can read Wayne Grudem's giant systematic theology and learn everything there is to learn about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and man, and sin, and everything else, and never worship God more, never repent of sin more, never love Jesus more. And we can do this. We can just live in a world where we just have kind of impractical and meaningless theology, doctrine, and Jesus won't have it. Jesus is saying you have to believe. And so what he's doing is sneaking past. So, for example, when some Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with sinners... He tells them two stories, or he tells them a story about two sons. You guys know this story? One son who is prodigal, who spends recklessly, and goes out and spends his entire inheritance, wastes everything, but then comes back to the father in repentance. And then the other son, who thinks that just because of his position and his works and his obedience, that he is somehow owed more from the father than the younger son. Jesus sneaks past the Pharisees' idea that of who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't. Who's in, who's out. Who's loved by God and who isn't. Jesus is just kind of sneaking past them. Or when a guy claims to love his neighbor and keep the law perfectly, Jesus tells him a story to show him that he really doesn't. He sneaks past and tells him a story about a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan who actually really does love. And he shows this man what love, what neighbor love really is. So he's sneaking past. So what we're going to do every week for the next 12 weeks, I've got six of these movies. So uh, we'll do that every other week or so. There's more parables than 12, but we're, I just picked 12. 
We're going to try to understand the parable about what Jesus is teaching, but it's not good enough to just understand it. Then we're going to try to then learn to live the parable. Okay? So, let's really quickly open to Matthew 13. You should be fully aware of where the book of Matthew is after the last 10 weeks. First book of the New Testament. Matthew 13, one verse, verse 44. Okay, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So that's what we just read, or just watched. Okay, what's the point? What's the point of this verse and the point of what we just watched? What do you guys think? What's the big idea here? Possibly. Any other thoughts? Nothing. What about, what, what kind of what kind of preconceived notions or ideas that we might have do you think Jesus is trying to sneak past by telling us this story? All right. You guys are deadbeats. All right. Uh, you betcha. I'm here for your love. Or I'm here to love you. Okay. Listen to this. This is from Mr. Snodgrass again. We're going to become well acquainted with Mr. Mr. Snodgrass over the last next 12 weeks. Klein Snodgrass says that we need to realize what time it is. What does he mean by this? He says, if the kingdom is present now, then radical response is needed now. The problem is, with most of us, is that we would like a little bit of the kingdom as an add-on. Just kind of add in a little bit of Jesus to our lives. I'm just going to live life the way I want to, and if Jesus can fit in, the kingdom can fit in as an add-on, like a little salt and pepper, and so be it. But this parable urges us to abandon what we thought was the focus of our life and focus entirely on what God is doing with the kingdom. You remember when the guy brought in the little sand bucket of oil? The very first thing, one of the very first things he said to his wife is she's like, ignoring him and playing with the kids. He says, honey, this is going to change our lives. Like, it's not just a little, we get to put a little oil add-on, to a little oil money add-on to the rest of our lives. It's going to uproot and change our lives. So Jesus says that the kingdom is here. And we're going to start talking about the kingdom more and more for the next 12 weeks. But Jesus is saying, it is here. I, I the king, am here, and my kingdom is now going to be advancing for However long until I return, it is advancing. Day by day, minute by minute, the kingdom is advancing now. He's defeated our enemy. Now we get to live in joyful submission to, to our king. Remember when I talked about, I think it was the very first Sunday uh, that I moved here, I talked about that the gospel isn't just self-help advice, but it's like a news headline, right? It's happened. Jesus lived, died, and was raised to new life, ascended into heaven. It's happened. He has defeated our enemy. So this isn't just kind of some self-help self advice. 
This is a news headline. The kingdom is here. And if this is true, we need to know what time it is, right? Snodgrass said. So Jesus seems to be saying, if this is true, why in the world would you devote your time, your energy, your anxiety, your worship of other kings, of other kingdoms, when this kingdom is here? The treasure is here. The oil is there under the rocks. And it's by God's grace that we find it. So now he's asking us, demanding us to acquire it. So Jesus, so this isn't, we've got to be careful when we're reading parables. We've got to be careful to not make this like doctrine 101 where we have to find A in the parable equals A doctrinally and B equals B, C equals C. So we're not, we don't actually go out and buy our salvation, right? We don't buy our way into the kingdom. But what is Jesus saying? I think this is exactly what we were talking about last week. We work out our salvation. We make sure that we own it. Remember when he took the geologist to the field and the geologist looked up and he said, you own this, right? And then he realizes, I need to own this now. I need to make sure that the deed of this property is mine. Can't let another minute pass by. So, if you ignore this news, this news headline, it would be like, can you, can you imagine how silly this guy would be if he went home and he was afraid to sell his $100,000 house, his like 15-year-old Toyota Corolla that he has to pound on to make stop? Do you guys realize how silly that would be for him to not sell that stuff in order to buy a field that has like $100 billion underneath it or however much. He's afraid to sell $100,000 so that he can not have $100 billion. That's foolish, right? And this is how Jesus is sneaking past us, disarm, disarming us to say, what you hold on to, what you're holding on to so tightly, you would be just as foolish. There's something of infinite worth and value, $100 billion waiting for you to come and just dig it up and enjoy. But we're kind of just, we'd rather just kind of hold on to the mud pies, right? We'd kind of rather just hold on to these little kings of popularity, of approval, of comfort. But, Josiah said that this parable is about sacrifice. I think this can often be interpreted this way. It's a good guess, but I think you're wrong. Uh, this seems like sacrifice, right? The guy just sold everything he had to sacrifice. He, sacri he sacrificed everything he had in order to buy the land. But... What does he say here? Jesus says, in the second part, he said, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. So he's not, like, he's not sacrificing a bunch of stuff and saying, ah, oh, man, I'm going to really miss that stuff. I'm really sacrificing my real desires so that I can just have this, right? He's saying, no, buying this is worth everything. So Remember, uh, I didn't, I've never even heard this French word that she, Limoges, Limoges, 
Limoges. Apparently, it's some kind of a dish, uh, right? Uh, but what does he say? Like, the wife is afraid to sell her wedding dishes, right? And he says, I will take you to France and buy you more dishes. Who cares? We'll get some real stuff. I'll take you out to the place where they actually make it over there, and we'll buy new ones, the real stuff, right? This isn't a sacrifice for you to get rid of this, this stuff. Let's get the real thing. So Jesus is saying, this isn't a sacrifice for us. I'm offering myself for you as the source of your true joy and satisfaction. You're not, like, giving up on the stuff that... We think of Jesus as a buzzkill, right? Tend to? Right? We've talked about this, right, in the last couple of weeks, where I guess if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I guess, man, I'm going to really have to sacrifice on a lot of things. Like, uh, I don't know, I'm not... I'm not going to get to drink very much, and I'm not going to get to party like I really want to, or whatever, you name it, right? But Jesus is saying, this is not a sacrifice. It is with, with great joy that I'm offering myself, and now just find it, the treasure. Find me. Treasure me. So, I read this week that a pastor said that the gospel is the good news that God's love is not based on your radical sacrifice for Jesus, right? It's not based on what you give up. Pat my back on what I gave up to follow Jesus. It's based on Jesus' radical sacrifice for you. Thought about that? We don't radically sacrifice ourselves. Jesus has already done that. All right. In with this, and I've gone too long since we watched a long movie. I read this a few months ago in John Piper's book, Future Grace. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, But this is a great summary, so stay with me on this. Jesus puts it like this. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Where does that come from? The Bible. Yes, it does. Come on, where does this come from? Matthew 7, like we talked about it seven days ago. Okay, all right. Uh, (laughs) All right, so Jesus says, this is Piper again speaking, that Jesus says the small gate and the narrow way imply that the way to life to Jesus is not easy. Okay, we talked about that. It's not really easy. But, oh, hang on. So both Paul and Jesus speak of keeping the faith as a rigorous struggle like running a marathon and boxing with fists. Then Piper asks, how can this square with other images of the Christian life? Like the one in Matthew 11 that we talked about last week, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus seems to be talking about the Christian life following Jesus as really hard, as a struggle. But then he says, it's really easy. I'll give you rest. So how how do we reconcile these two things? Piper says, can it be both hard and easy at the same time? Yes. He says, what could be easier than trusting God to work for you, to take care of you, to give you all that you need, to strengthen you for every challenge? So he says, in one sense, faith is the opposite of straining, of working. 
It's ceasing from the effort to earn God's approval and demonstrate your worth or merit, and it is resting in the gracious promises of God to pursue us with goodness and mercy for all of our days. Faith in Jesus, following Jesus, is easy. We give up struggling and trying to find approval, and we just rest in him. But this ease of faith assumes that our hearts are humble enough to renounce all self-reliance, all self-direction, all self-exaltation. It assumes a heart that is spiritual enough to taste and delight in the beauty of God. So, this is how he concludes it, and this is what I want us to, to hear, and this is the image that I want you guys to remember. Piper says it's like a monkey with a hand caught in a jar. Okay, so he's stuck. This is why he's stuck. It would be easy for him to slip his hand out of the opening, except that he has his fist clenched around a piece of fruit. Okay? So here's the problem he's presenting. All he has to do is let go of the fruit, and he slips his hand out. But he's holding on to the fruit. If he loves the fruit more than he loves his freedom from the jar, then getting his hand out of the jar would be hard, even impossible. So if he loves the fruit more than freedom, then it's going to be hard. It's going to require struggle, straining, right? And this is what Jesus says in Mark 10, 27, about the young man who had his fist clenched around his wealth. He wasn't ready to get rid of it or to let go of it. But what could be easier than dropping the fruit? There's nothing easier that the monkey will do in the rest of his life than just let go of that piece of fruit. Right? And then what happens? He's free. The battle that Paul and Jesus are talking about, this how do we reconcile this hard life with the easy life thing? Trusting in Jesus is both easy and hard. How do we reconcile this? It's the battle to love freedom of faith more than the fruit of sin. Right? I'm just imagining, you guys seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Right? the very end, the blonde Nazi lady, right? She wants, she's like falling in the chasm, and she wants to reach up and grab that holy grail so she can have eternal life or whatever, whatever. She, she wants, this is not some analogy for Christian faith or whatever, but she, she wants that cup more than she wants freedom in life. And what happens? She doesn't get either. She doesn't get the cup, and she doesn't get life. She gets death. So, Jesus is telling us in this parable to drop the fruit, to go out and sell everything you have, metaphorically speaking, to buy the treasure, to buy the, the treasure that we find with joy, not with sacrifice. So not only if you don't drop the fruit will you be stuck in the jar forever, but you won't even get the fruit in the end because you can't get it out. The thing that you're holding on to so tightly doesn't satisfy you. And dropping the fruit might take some sort of what you think is sacrifice and radical action. But remember, this parable isn't about sacrifice. It's about joy. So, what time we got? What time? We got about 15 minutes. Um, let's, let's break up and talk about First question we're going to talk about, I think it might be your first. 
What are the things that we're holding on to? What are these pieces of fruit that we're not willing to let go of, that we're not willing to let go of in order to find the treasure? Okay? So this is a short parable. I think it's a good intro to Jesus' parables, and we're going to continue to talk more and more about those. But, again, as we talk here in our small groups for 10 or 15 minutes, but also, it's not good enough to just know and understand Jesus' parables, right? This is empty doctrine, empty theology, if we don't actually begin to let go of the fruit and trust in him, buying the field, acquiring the treasure. So let's think about how, as we talk about this, how this might affect how we eat lunch today, how we live today, and how we live this week at school or at home, okay? All right, 